1: and welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of one of the sister channels in the New Book Networks, New Books in Genocide Studies. Occasionally, however, I moonlight as the guest host of New Books in History, and I'm doing that today, and I'm particularly happy to be doing it today because it gives me the great privilege to talk with Nicholas Stargardt. Nick is Professor of Modern European History at Magdalen College, Oxford, and he's written a splendid new book titled The German War A Nation Under Arms, 1939 to 1945 Citizens and Soldiers. The book is a remarkable survey of Germany at war, focusing on questions of motivation and public opinion, but addressing a much broader range of topics. And every once in a while, filled with incredible little tidbits of knowledge. And so I'm thrilled to get a chance to unpack it a bit with Nick. And Nick, with that, thanks for being with us in New Books in History, and welcome to the show.
0: Hi, it's great to be here. Um, hello, everybody.
1: So, so why don't we start just by um, giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to be a historian of Germany.
0: I never really planned to be a historian, least of all to work on this period of history. And yet, of course, when you look back at things, you find that it was probably obvious to everybody else, but not to you. <laughs> um, I didn't study the Nazi period, and I didn't actually even do a degree in history to start with, but my father came from Nazi Germany. He had grown up in Berlin. Um, he was nearly 13 when Hitler came to power. And he came from a um, a secular Jewish family of um, anti-war, left-leaning, uh, middle-class people who then emigrated to Australia in 1939. So he Fortunately, didn't experience either the war or the Holocaust, but of course, I grew up with his family stories of what it was like to be in Berlin in the early 1930s. And I'm sure that um, awakened an interest in the past, but of course, also more specifically in this past.
1: And so you started your first book, the earlier book, I think it was your first, was about children in Nazi
0: Germany. Is that right? That's actually my second. My first book, um, there is a biographical element to all of them. Um, The first book was actually a study of anti-militarism. It was the people who Ah, thought rather sweetly that they could prevent the outbreak of the First World War, and that was the political background which his family came from. And his father, interestingly, had actually volunteered in 1915 because he knew if he didn't volunteer, he'd be conscripted. And so... Hmm. By volunteering, he could serve as a medical orderly. He could serve in a non-combat role and help people rather than have to kill them. Um, And since he disapproved of the war, that was probably the best he could have done about it. Um, And so in a way, that first book was a study of the world that not that my father had known, but which his parents had known and also lost. The second is, is not a world that either of any of them really inhabited. It's actually my mother's generation who's Australian and has no Jewish background, but comes from a Catholic Irish one and a Scottish Methodist one. Hmm. Um, but it's the background of children who grew up in the war um, in Germany, but also in countries occupied by Germany. So it was an attempt to use the drawings and games. And the letters and the social welfare records and even the medical files of children to reconstruct their experiences of this period from very, very different backgrounds as a way of seeing how the shattering events of that period had created a multiplicity of viewpoints, many of which were incompatible with each other. And As if one could collect these fragments, you could somehow then reassemble this destroyed entity, which was occupied Europe under German rule. Um, so that was a long project that took 11 years, so this is quite a comparison, this only took nine.
1: So, so I think you said in the introduction to the, to the current book that you really didn't intend to revisit this period. No, I thought uh, 11
0: years um, was quite enough and um, I promised everybody I knew who cared that I wouldn't be writing another book about the war, Nazi Germany or the Holocaust. Um, and the only bit of the promise that I kept is that this book is not principally about children. But I realized that there was one nagging thing that I didn't know the answer to. And I thought I'd write a short essay about it. And it was this. Mm. There was a lot of information that, that showed that in the middle of the war, um, in the summer of 1943, Germans talked in public about the murder of the Jews. And this was quite remarkable because we knew that a lot of information circulated privately in Germany by word of mouth, through letters from the Eastern Front, photographs that soldiers had taken about the mass execution of Jews, and that many people realized that this was genocidal in its reach. And of course, it was. I mean, at least two and a half million of the 6 million Jews killed in the Holocaust were killed not in gas chambers or in death camps, but by mass shooting, by things which were fairly public events. So we knew that that kind of information circulated privately in 1941 and 42, when the killing was at its height. But that was all we knew. And what we hadn't really taken account of was that there was a period a year or so later where it became a, a topic of public conversation, a public conversation in dictatorship, which was fairly committed to not making this crime public itself. And so it was puzzling. And I realized that we didn't really know how to understand it. At some point, I realized that it also wasn't necessarily a conversation about German guilt over the Jews. It might also be about a range of other things. And I realized I couldn't understand what it meant. The Germans were talking about the Holocaust in the middle of their own war if we didn't know what they thought of the war itself and what mattered to them and what their fears were and what their hopes were. And it was that puzzle, it was that problem that set me on this chase. And I thought I'd originally just write a short essay and then the short essay was going to be a short didactic book and in the end, <laughs> 730 pages. So, But it's meant to be quite quick to read.
1: Well, and, and it is. And you write about this remarkably clearly and and well, and one of the things you do, um, and I want to expand this kind of into a methodology question, one one of the ways you approach this is to look at the letters uh, of people who were participating in this. And so if if what you're interested in is is what Germans thought about the war and, and, and why they thought about it in particular ways, how do you go finding that out?
0: That's where the personal material matters. A lot of historians use individual letters and diaries, but very often they use them the way the journalists use these sorts of things to give local colour to something where you're essentially giving a narrative of events. I wanted to know what people thought and what their moral involvements with what they were doing were. And the only way you can do that is to have a sense of chronology and of change, of people's expectations changing, and under the more horrific events and the more unexpected events of the war, their personalities even start to change, or the value systems change. And that's really very difficult to trace, and you need to have a, a long run of letters. You need to have a sense that when somebody writes, oh, this is appalling, I'm completely depressed, this isn't just a one-off, you know, bad day, bad headache kind of comment, that this is something... <laughs> that is actually more than temporary, or that it's something that they can come back out of. And so, you know, the main reason that people write letters is, of course, to write to each other. So the first challenge was to find collections of letters where you had both sides of the correspondence. Because, of course, what's interesting about the First and Second World Wars is that people write letters who would never have written in normal periods of time, because they weren't, you know, they weren't very literary. They i have written shopping lists or they might have written their wills, but that would have been about it. Whereas the distance, the, the sense of separation of husbands and wives, lovers, close friends, parents and children, um, tend to produce letters from every social class in every region of Germany. And that's very, very interesting. And so one of the challenges was then to find both sides so that you could reconstruct what was important to them, which was, of course, their relationships with each other. And then, almost at a second level, you could try to work out what they thought of the wider war, which, to them, is always the background. It's almost never the foreground. Uh-huh. Personal diaries, it's sometimes the other way around. People often kept diaries thinking that they were living in some kind of heroic times and that they wanted to keep a record of... You know, there's a famous British First World War poster where the child is asking the father, "So, Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? And there's a kind of quality of that in the Second World War diaries that it's as if sometimes they explicitly say, I'm writing this for my small son so that he can read this when he grows up and he'll see what I did. Um, of course, one of the ironies is that because Germany lost the war and because the Nazi regime collapsed, with it went all of the nationalist values which had underpinned A sense of patriotic commitment during the war and afterwards nobody could remember why they fought this, why they committed to it because afterwards it looked obvious that they would lose and once you accept defeat, you can't remember what you sacrificed anything for and that's one of the reasons for not using a lot of um, oral history interviews or memoirs written a long time after the event is that you lose that sense of dramatic irony, you lose that sense of people not knowing what lies around the corner because they know too much and they've and they're too busy reshaping it not necessarily intentionally but they reshape it nonetheless because when people look back they're always trying to make sense of where they've got to now not what they were really like then and so i think for the nazi period more than any other period of modern history it's it's very very helpful if you can get sources from the time where people just don't know what's going to happen next to them. And that also gives it a kind of quality a bit like reading or writing a novel where the author knows the outcome, but the characters don't.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's start to unpack some of the things you said. And and one of the first things that struck me reading your book is, is the importance of the memory of the First World War, both both in terms of the people who were actively in government making policies and, and in terms of ordinary people. So, can you talk a little bit about how, how the First World War was remembered and what kind of lessons people learned from it? Yes,
0: there, there are, of course, more than one kind of memory um, mm. because the First World War in Germany ended in a revolution which divided the country and almost led to civil war or periods of very close to civil war. And so one of the interesting things is to work out what, what people Shared across a wide range of social and political backgrounds and the ones that they didn't. So there were sections of very nationalist society who felt that the war was never fought to a conclusion and that they, the army should have had one last great um, offensive in 1918 and that somehow they had failed to, to wage this final struggle. And you, quite a lot of these young officers of 1918 become senior officers in 1944 and 1945, and it certainly plugs into their motivation to keep fighting to the very end in Five. But that's not a view which would have been that widely shared across German society. What's much more widely shared and remembered is the sense of hardship and sacrifice, and that the war cost Germany nearly two million military dead, and... Or probably almost an equal number of civilian dead through cold, hunger, um, and various diseases that followed. So a city like Berlin, by the second half of the war, is actually losing more civilians to um, these kind of illnesses than it is military casualties. And that kind of memory means that in the pre-war period, in the last big crisis before the outbreak of the Second World War, which is in 1938, and last five months over Czechoslovakia and over whether or not it will be dismembered, and of course it culminates in the Munich agreement where the great powers do agree that Germany should be allowed to dismember Czechoslovakia. During those five months of crisis, there's a very powerful wave of opinion, not just in Britain, that war should be avoided, but also in Germany. And that's the interesting thing, Is we know how bellicose Hitler is. We know how much he actually thought war was a good thing. But that's not a value which is shared by most Germans. And so there's a weird way in which the sorts of resentments, the desires to reverse the defeat of 1918, to reclaim bits of German territory... Many people can sympathise with those aims, but they don't sympathise with the means, and they don't think it's actually worth going to war for. So there's a kind of... Even the secret police, even the sort of SS um, listening posts trying to eavesdrop across German society say that even long-time old Nazis do not want to go to war and are terrified of going to war. And this is reflected right up to the level of the general staff, and indeed into the Nazi leadership. I mean, One of the key figures who helps to broker the Munich Agreement is actually Hermann Göring, the founder of the Luftwaffe the German Air Force, who will direct the Battle of Britain and the Blitz um, bombing of London and other cities in Britain. Um, But in 1938 and again in 1939, he's very, very worried about going to war against Britain and France. So in a funny way, the first lesson of the First World War is avoid war. Avoid another war like this. the second lesson, is if you can't avoid it, then you have to avoid the defeat. You can't afford to be defeated a second time like 1918 because everybody imagines that 1918 was bad enough. But what would happen if we lost another war would be much worse. And so they are tied in a generational sense to what they know happened. There's a third way in which they're tied to it, which is very, very useful to Hitler in 1939, and that is that for most Germans, the outbreak of the First World War was not an act of German aggression. Most of them believed that they were themselves under attack. And this was to do with the choreography, it's to do with the way the German government allowed events to evolve in the summer of 1914. In that summer, they made sure that Russia mobilized before Germany mobilized, and that Russia was more or less allowed to invade the eastern province of East Prussia, and that immediately triggered a patriotic rallying of the population, which included the moderate socialists. So it included everybody from rabid right-wing nationalists across middle liberals, Catholic voters, right across the socialists, and it was on the basis of national defense. And so they could rally to patriotism, which is about hearth and home. Where they would not have supported a war of aggression and foreign conquest. And so Hitler's ploy in 1939 is to try and recreate this popular rallying of all Germans to the national flag. And he does it by appearing to be quite reasonable in his demands to a solution to the Polish question, by not demanding the abolition of the Polish state, but simply that the the German minority in Danzig or in the so-called Polish Corridor should um, come under either German or international supervision and he makes a series of demands which appear to be reasonable but are not and never intended to allow a negotiated settlement. What he's trying to do is, he's overheard saying in the presence of his translator, is to create an alibi for the German people so that he can tell them this war was forced upon you and the same phrases are used in the media about encirclement, especially by Great Britain. So, the idea is always that Britain is trying to defend its world empire by isolating Germany on the continent and putting minor powers like the Poles up to it. So, it isn't that Poland is trying to defend its independence against German aggression, which is how we would see the outbreak of the war, but in these terms, that the Poles are being provocative and they're only really daring to be provocative because the British are egging them on to do it. And so you create a myth which rests on an earlier myth, hmm. named the myth of how Germany got into the First World War and also what the end of the First World War meant, that it wasn't really a German defeat. It was, it was a failed victory. It was something where revolution and unrest snatched um, victory out of Um, German hands and so there's an interplay between resentments and the way in which people think that the First World War actually broke out and they play into this idea that you could invade Poland and yet be be doing national defense that you know in modern terms it would be like that wonderful phrase of George W. Bush forward defense (laughs) but it is this You know, if you try to pin down what counts as a just war or an unjust war, it's actually very, very difficult to do it in straightforward geopolitical terms. Because if you can only wage a just war by waiting for somebody to invade your territory, of course, that's then tying your hands in terms of military strategy or tactics. And so nobody in Germany believed you had to do that. And yet, if you choreograph it right, you can persuade people that they're under attack. So I think the first and most important step that the Nazis do is to persuade people that there is a patriotism of hearth and home, not actually one of imperial conquest. So we know that Hitler always wanted to wage a war, and indeed had said so in Mein Kampf in his famous book of 1923, that you know, Germany needed so-called living space, it needed to conquer colonies in Russia, it needed a kind of East European empire, that would provide food and raw materials for it to be a great power of a scale that could challenge Britain or the United States for um, world power. And this was obviously his plan, and you know, the history books of the last um, 30 years or so have only made this clearer. But what they've made unclear is why would anybody in Germany have wanted to fight that war. And the answer is is that most people didn't think that was the war they were fighting. Um, And so you have a wonderful, strange way in which the war is very rarely popular. People, on the whole, wish that it hadn't broken out. But that itself helps to convince them that they didn't want it to break out, that they didn't do anything (laughs) aggressive themselves. And therefore, they have to fight it. They have to see it through to the end. Because otherwise... Um, they will be defeated and they will be occupied and any peace settlement of will be much, much worse than it was in 1918. And the strange thing is that that kind of view is actually, there's nothing you can do to break it down because the worse the war goes and the more Germany suffers defeats in the second half of the war and the more heavily its cities are bombed, the more obvious it is to Germans that it's defensive. Yeah,
1: Sorry,
0: go ahead. All I was going to say is, so there's a way in which the war itself becomes the central thing that they worry about, not whether or not they support the Nazi regime. They support the war, and the war has a legitimacy which the Nazi regime actually rarely has. The Nazi regime is something that people support some policies, reject others. It allows many Germans to think of themselves as not being Nazis because they don't like They don't like um, sterilization of psychiatric patients or later what they might hear about the murder of psychiatric patients or they might not like radical Nazi attacks on the Catholic Church. There are many ways in which Germans can differentiate themselves from the regime and yet see themselves as loyal patriots who are rallying to this national cause during the war.
1: So so one of the things you actually point out in the book is that This is one of the ways in which the the killing of the Jews plays into this increased determination to go to war because, as as I think you explain in the book, the, the tagline becomes then, because of what we have done, the consequences of the war will be extraordinary and so we cannot afford to lose the war.
0: Yes. I mean, if one replays this, it's probably best to replay it from the, in reverse. So at the end yeah. of the war, when the Western Allies start occupying parts of Germany, there's quite a lot of public opinion that U.S. forces pick up that Germans expect to be punished for what has been done to the Jews, and they expect to be held collectively guilty for that. And actually, during Nuremberg, the Allies talk very, very little about collective guilt, but it's assumed by the Germans. So there's a lot of German talk about collective guilt, in order to reject it, in order to say we weren't guilty. This was something the regime did. But one winds this back, and what you find is that from from 1941 onwards, there is an expectation that the, that the that the aggression which the regime is meeting out against the Jews will be paid back. And it will be paid back principally by Britain and the US. And the, so it's interesting both in terms of things which are true and things which are mythical. So one of the myths in 1941 when Jews are forced to wear a yellow star is that the US has immediately retaliated and forced all Germans to wear a swastika on the same left-hand side of their clothing as the Jews are being made to wear a yellow star. This, of course, remember, is still two months before um, Germany declares war on the United States. So the two countries are not at war yet. And yet there is this imagined retaliation. There is this imagined tit-for-tat escalation, um, which goes back to attempted boycotts of Jewish businesses in the 1930s and the kind of international condemnation and boycott campaigns that were raised in the West. So they have a sort of link to reality, but they aren't real, of course. I mean, there was no such measure in the United States. Um, but it's imagined. And when when the British start the area bombing of German cities um, on a very effective, massive scale in the spring and summer of 1933, Way and that's actually the context in which people talk in public about being for what we've done to the Jews, and that's with the bombing. They equate the bombing of German cities with, in quotes, the Jewish retaliation, and that's itself very, very interesting because it it plays at two levels. On the plays exactly into a Nazi version of what the war is about: that there is a world Jewish conspiracy that somehow the Jewish lobby in Washington and London can control the war effort and can control where the bombers go and direct them to the cities. On the other hand, you know, if Goebbels was going to be pleased that people had bought that, he would have been very upset Hmm. by the direct message, which is, oh, if only we hadn't treated the Jews so badly, then this wouldn't be happening to us. And it's always couched at that point in this sort of, if only this sort of wish for something to be de-escalated, a wish to go back to the way things were earlier. So it's, of course, an impossible wish, but it does reflect how vulnerable people felt in the summer of 43 and how much they also thought that not only had they committed a war crime, had they overstepped some basic moral norm um, by murdering the Jews, but that the Allies were doing so as well. And there's a very clear relationship where the regime talks about Jewish terror bombing, where it only means the bombing of cities, and that when this famous dam buster raids carried out by the RAF by the British against the dams in the Ruhr, although they actually kill thousands of people when the when the waters flood out. On the whole, Germans do not think of that as terror bombing. They think of that as a sensible, legitimate strike on a military strategic target because it's trying to hit German industry. You know, the dams are generating power, which is incredibly important for industry in the Ruhr. This is the kind of um, this is the steel and coal belt of um, of Germany, and the heartland of German armaments production. And so, Goebbels tries calling the dam buster raids, Jewish terror bombing, and immediately encounters a wave of criticism. So this isn't a population which can just be white brainwashed. It doesn't just believe everything its media tells it. What happens is you get a kind of funny conversation where whatever Goebbels puts into the press and into the radio becomes a subject of discussion, and it helps to shape public opinion, but it doesn't control it. And once it's out there, you can't really stop people from talking about it. And so he can never quite decide how much or how little he wants people to talk about this being a war against the Jews. Because in 1943, people are using it as a way of criticizing the regime and saying, why can't we make peace with the West? And in 1944, he comes back to it, and people do use it in the way that you were indicating that actually we can actually use Jews as hostages, as kind of human shields, if we could only hold enough Jews in our cities, in ghettos, then the Allied bombers wouldn't come there. And that's quite frightening. And the thing that triggers that is the German occupation of Budapest and the Hungarians erect a ghetto for their Jews. And the Germans think, oh, well, yeah, then Budapest isn't being bombed, so this must indicate that this works. And they then start criticizing their regime for actually deporting the Jews, and that if only we'd be more sensible, we'd have held them as these sort of hostages. So it has a shadow of um, that moment in the Iraq war where Saddam Hussein was being um, criticized for using prisoners of war as human shields in Baghdad, except this is, of course, particular Nazi or German fantasy of, of what will deter Allied bomb attack.
1: Well, let's talk just a minute. Um, my my students often come to me with a a, a, a view that's uh, that they've learned from TV or from movies that, that this is a coercive regime where that kind of discussion you talk about simply cannot take pl- or won't take place because people are too afraid. Um, so can you talk a little bit about? I guess first, what what kind of channels did the not the the governmental leadership the Nazi leadership what kind of channels did they try and use to influence public opinion? And and why was it that German citizens felt free, at least to some degree, to have this kind of interactive discussion with their leaders?
0: I think think what often gives the impression that this is a totalitarian regime which terrorizes its own population and nobody dares to say anything because they might be arrested by the Gestapo is a false comparison with Stalinist Russia. Mm. The Stalinist regime effectively doesn't really care about public opinion because it assumes that most of... Soviet society is against it and that it's trying to transform the whole social and economic structure of ownership and class relations and who has what occupations and where they live and everything about the society without much social consent. And so the Stalinist regime really does use terror as a domestic tool and their way of Enforcing conformity is indeed to get people to parrot back the slogans of the regime unchanged, so almost without any thought. So it's not really interested in what people think, it's interested in whether they conform. And that isn't how Nazi Germany works. Nazi terror, when they came to power, was directed primarily against the left and against the trade unions and the old labor movement, and it very quickly dies down. It assumes mass proportions for about a year, and by the summer of '34, um, you know over a hundred thousand people have passed through concentration camps and come out again, mostly. Um, and only about four and a half thousand political prisoners remain at that point. They nearly closed the camp system down. And from that point onwards. Nazi terror within Germany will be directed against much smaller social minorities and they don't terrorize their own population en masse again until the very final weeks of the war. It's not until you have German troops and SS units retreating from the Rhine southwards towards the Southwest in April 1945 that you start to have the horrific scenes where people are being hanged for from trees in small villages and towns for wanting to surrender to the Americans or the British or even the French. And so for most of this period and also for most of the war the regime is not trying to intimidate the majority of its population it's trying to use them and it essentially leaves a middle class society of professionals intact and goes on using the normal instruments of social power and social influence within a very censored regiment press and radio but nonetheless they allow a certain spectrum of opinion to exist and they allow the catholic church and with some misgivings the different protestant churches to go on functioning normally so many of the aspects of a pre-nazi civil society are still there and What's particularly striking about Goebbels' use of the media is he doesn't try to indoctrinate people or brainwash them. What he does is what advertisers do. He tries to work out what people already believe and press a series of buttons which will get the right response and not press the antagonistic one. So one of the most interesting books about Nazi propaganda is about Nazi images of Britain, where... American society, and sorry, American-German society in the 1920s and 30s was very Anglophile, and yet they knew that they had to go to war with this country. And so what they do is they actually harness the Anglophilia. They persuade Germans that they're actually trying to liberate the British, and they persuade them that the British, the nice, decent British worker, is suffering under a an oppressive system run by Jewish money, run by kind of decadent aristocrats. And what they create are these images of the two nations, Britain, or a very class-ridden British society. So they, they take photographs of the Jarrow Hunger marches, the unemployed marching down to London, and they contrast it with scenes of affluence, the aristocrats turning out in all kinds of strange hats to watch horse racing at Ascot rowing at Henley Royal Regatta or most, the thing they like most of all because they find it hilarious is the state opening of Parliament because you have all of these people wearing 18th century wigs and wigs went out in Germany um, during Napoleonic times in the early 1800s and so they just fall about themselves when they see these, this kind of pantomime version of Britain and what it reminds them of is that this is Britain under an ancien regime a regime which needed to be liberated. It needs its own modern version of National Socialism. And so the British can imagine that they're fighting the Germans for democracy and for human rights. The Germans can imagine that they're fighting the British for um, anti-imperialism and to liberate the mass of the population from this creaking, old-fashioned, unequal, social and political system. So um, the interesting thing in how you create those images, I mean, they're much more sophisticated, interestingly, than than British propaganda images about Germany, where, you know, it's just the Huns. The German. you know, here come the Germans again. They were militarists in the First World War. They're militarists again now. There's nothing to do except fight them. And so the British versions of what they're fighting in Germany in the Second World War tend to be a lot less sophisticated in fact. Because they don't need to be, because people are already pretty hostile to to what Hitler stands for. And they see it as as a regimented nation. In fact, the interesting thing is how unregimented it is. There are lots and lots of rules that Germans break all the time. There's a ban on listening to foreign radio, which is virtually unenforceable. There are bans even within the military about taking photographs of almost anything, which people take photographs of all the time, and nobody enforces these bans what they do is they enforce them selectively. So the the military mail is censored, but it's censored um, remotely. It's censored at divisional headquarters. So it's not censored by your immediate commanding officer. And it's not all censored. It's sampled. They take out one letter in a thousand. And so the chances are that none of your letters would be censored. And that if you if one of them was, it would probably be censored only for saying where you were, which is, again, something people write about all the time, but they're not meant to say. And the final reason why people don't censor themselves is they don't think that they're opposed to the regime. They think that they're somehow trying to improve the regime. They think these are loyal forms of criticism. And it's, it's actually that's probably the most interesting thing. So the people who think that they're really anti-Nazis, because they come from a traditional left-wing background, or indeed had been persecuted in the early years of the regime, they take precautions. They act like conspirators. They become underground resistors. But the people in between say all kinds of anti-Nazi things in public, in their letters, in their diaries. And they don't expect to be punished for it because they don't think that they are the enemies of this regime. They know that this regime is very brutal when it faces people who are not like us. But the interesting thing is that they think that whenever the regime puts something in the public sphere, it entitles them to have an opinion about it. And so what you get is a particular kind of public opinion, which is actually legitimated by Nazi propaganda and quite often gets out of control. The regime, you know, when the regime is trying to mould opinion like this, it has to deal with the fact that people don't always say what it wants. And this takes all kinds of forms. So one of the interesting ones is middle-class theatre performances. Um, Goebbels quite quickly gives up on trying to have Nazi playwrights performed in German theatres because audiences drift away, they find them incredibly boring, and what they want is is the old classics back. But some of the classics, which are still performed, like Schiller, have a strong democratic, strong libertarian um, streak in them, and they have to deal with speeches which are about freedom and free speech and liberty. Um, And in Austria, which has been annexed in March 1938, they have to deal with um, Austrian playwrights who celebrate Austrian independence. And all of these things go on being performed some theatre directors get jumpy and start cutting some of the speeches and expurgating. But very often you'll get moments where the audience stands up and claps in the wrong places. And local Nazis get very hot under the collar and they write in to the you know, controllers of the theatre in Berlin and say, how can you let this kind of um, nest of reactionaries go on um, with this stuff? And and Goebbels' civil servants write back and say to them, look, calm down. It's just a safety valve. These people will do what we want, but we have to let them enjoy their version of German culture the way they want to. And, of course, if you think about the character of the audiences, these are, on the whole, middle-class professionals who are buying season tickets and going to their, you know, the same seats in the same dress circle every week and seeing their neighbors, and they feel completely that they're in their own community, and it doesn't stop them getting on with their day job, which might indeed involve deporting Jews or administering the rationing system on bits of occupied Europe, and all kinds of other things which are very, very useful from the regime's point of view. And I think that's one of the interesting things, is that as you spread this, if you start with patriotism and the war, rather than... This is a Nazi project and whether the regime supports the, sorry, whether the regime can get popular support or not, but whether the war can get popular support. You open this whole space in which what you start to look for is not whether people want to sing Nazi songs or read bits of Nazi propaganda, but whether they can find the values which will sustain them out of their own version of German culture. Can they read Goethe on the Eastern Front? Can they read Schiller as they go towards Stalingrad? These are much more powerful because they have stood the previous generation in good stead in the previous war, and they feel this is their identity. It's very similar in that respect to British people going and watching Olivia's film of Henry V in 1944 and feeling that that is what they are going to go on to the
1: north. Beaches for. Well, one of the alternate uh, institutions or, or, or frameworks of belief that might have, uh, might have offered a different way of, of, of looking at the war or the experience of the German people was, was the church. And you point out that, that the German churches do, in fact, protest at particular point in time, points in time, but not often and not in ways which fundamentally question the, the, the validity of the war. That's right. So each,
0: again, here you have to peel off decades and decades of post-war PR on the part of church historians where they're trying to rescue a, version, a non-Nazi version of themselves and if possible to create an anti-Nazi one. So probably the, thing that, the two things that everybody knows is that on the Protestant side, there, was, there were pastors like Martin Niemöller, um, who famously wrote that poem in 1946 or 47. You know, first they came for the communists, but I wasn't a communist, so I didn't do anything. And then they came for the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't do anything and so on. And it goes through this sense of culpability and remorse. Um, but what they don't know is that Niemöller was in fact a submarine captain in the First World War. Yeah. And a brilliant nationalist, and when he was retraining as a theologian in the early 1920s, he campaigned for the Nazis in every general election from 23 through to 33. Mm. And so his disenchantment with the Nazis starts, in fact, not with their politics, but with their theology. And what he really objects to on the Protestant side is the attempt to create a single national Protestant church in Germany, which is probably easier to understand why that would annoy people so much in America than it is in Britain, which has a national church. Mm. Um, There are too many different German churches, and they don't want to agree on a common view of liturgy or even theology. And so the splits in Protestantism, which become slowly politicized and not originally political, they are about, the attempt to Nazify the Protestant liturgy by abolishing the Old Testament, by expurgating references to the Jews, by creating a new um, hymn book, and things which completely alter their sense of traditional worship. And that's what splits the Protestants. And in fact, the Confessing Church, the side that Niemele, um comes to represent, most of its pastors are much more conservative and much more pro-Nazi, and some of them are even stormtroopers. Um, And so it gives you a false idea of liberal versus Nazi versions of the Protestant church, and no Protestant um, church leader protests against the um, deportation of the Jews, and neither do any of the Catholic bishops. Catholic bishops protest in the summer and autumn of 1941 against the murder of psychiatric patients in Germany. But they don't do so primarily because of human rights violations. They do so because it coincides with an attack on church property. And they're radical Nazis who start, with the support of Himmler and the SS, who start sequestering and taking over convent buildings, expelling religious orders, and trying to plunder church property. And The bishop who leads these protests, um, Bishop Garland of Münster, preaches three great sermons. And the first two of these are about the attack on the church. And it's only the third sermon that he raises the issue of the murder of psychiatric patients and what it is to attack (coughs) the human rights of German citizens. And he very deliberately takes a patriotic example. He says, what would happen to a wounded war veteran, disabled on the Eastern Front, fighting Jewish Bolshevism, if they came back to Germany and they were not able to contribute to society? Would that person also be vulnerable? And of course it spreads panic. And um, Hitler is, and Goebbels are both furious. Their first reactions are to arrest or execute Garland, and very quickly they realized that that would be counterproductive, and Hitler simply actually vetoes any action against him, and says, "No, we'll take care of this after the war is won. What we need to do right now is to deescalate this confrontation, and he insists that all of the radical Nazi measures against the church should be stopped and that 's one of the key clues, which is that to most Catholics, supporting the Nazis is not necessarily Incompatible with being a Catholic because they think that the anti clerical Nazis are only one group and they don't They think that Himmler belongs to it and probably Goebbels, but they don't think that Hitler is. And even the primate of Germany, Archbishop um, Bertram and Archbishop Faulhaber, they go and talk to Hitler for hours and they come away personally convinced that he's a deeply religious man. You know, and he obviously isn't, from what we know but he's able to lay it on enough that they fall for it. And what they actually are is a group of rather elderly clerics, people who had been formed before the First World War. Many of them are in their 70s, whereas the Nazi leadership tends to be in its early 50s or even 40s. So they're a generation older. And they speak this very abstract language. So a lot of what they preach in pastoral letters goes over the heads of their congregations. But they're also deeply nationalist. And one of the most interesting things is not whether or not they protest against the deportation of the Jews, but that they don't even protest against the murder of Polish Catholic clergy in Poland in 1939-1940. The Vatican protests loudly but the German Catholic bishops do not protest against attacks on their own church but just not their own national church. And so you can see that even at the beginning of the war, they have made a kind of devil's pact, which is about German nationalism. And they, this becomes much greater after Germany is at war with the Soviet Union because they have always been virulently anti-communist. And they see this finally as a national crusade. Wow. And they fully support the war effort from that point on. And that's one of the reasons why this brief this brief confrontation between the the bishops and the Nazi regime dies down again. Because by the winter of 1941, six months into the Soviet campaign, it's very clear that Germany is not about to win this war. That it's bogged down in front of Moscow in the snows, and that this is a long drawn war, and that. However much they dislike each other, the Nazi Party and the Catholic Church start cooperating over various sorts of measures like the evacuation of children to the countryside, which previously the church had had um, refused to support. Um, but they realize they now have to actually cooperate or the um, war effort will be weakened so cool. it was a massive missed opportunity um, and it only makes sense in terms of not do they like each other or do they trust each other? The answer would be no, no. Mm-hmm. But do they feel that they share an overwhelming common threat? And that's, that, I think, is what binds Germans together. It isn't that this is a society which is united or doesn't have a lot of tensions in it. It does. And it still has quite a wide range of, of opinions. And what's interesting is how do you stitch these together and how do the crises of the war make those, that tension, that sense of having to keep going, actually greater?
1: So I'd, We don't have a lot of time left, but, I, but I'd like to ask you of, uh, just a few things about kind of the experience of reading these letters and, and, and the experience of the war that you learned about from that. And, and one of the things reading your accounts of the letters that really struck me, Um, and I suspect it's a universal experience in a lot of ways is the sense of absence that, that one of the things that characterized German society is that, that families were apart from each other, that lovers, that spouses, that parents and children were spending months or years writing letters to each other rather than seeing each other. I wonder if you could say just a little bit about what, how that manifested itself during the war.
0: Yes, that was what made me realize that this is not a nation of kind of people who want to wear uniforms and go in goose-stepping formation through the Arc de Triomphe, like those kind of famous images of the Germans in Paris in 1940. But it's actually a nation of civilians in uniform. Because what they do is they write about the war as wasted time, as time which has been ripped out of their normal lives. And they write endlessly about what it means to miss birthdays, what it means to miss family Christmas. And the calendar of each year is full of these missed occasions when people don't get leave home leave that often, and it's very rarely more than two weeks when they do get it, unless they're wounded, in which case the Wehrmacht sends them back for actually quite long periods of recuperation. But all the time, part of the story of this sort of low-key patriotic, mobilization is that people talk about the war as a necessary evil, as something which is threatening their lives, but they still have to do. And they talk about it in almost idealist terms, like when it is over, real time will begin again. That's when we will be paid back for all the time we've lost. And it's as if they can somehow freeze their normal lives and, um, put them on hold, and find each other as exactly the same person again, unchanged. So the promise is actually always an unreal one, unless the war had been very short. And the longer the war goes, the more that people realise that they're stretching the bounds of credibility, that they're, it's going to be very difficult to find each other unchanged by the war. And that's, of course, one of the things that family letters conceal as much as they reveal. So Mostly Germans don't write about sex or their own sexual needs when they're separated. I have a wonderful collection from a baker from Hamburg and his wife, where he's so miserable, posted off to guard French business of war in an outlying farm in Eastern Germany that he, you know, he's got no comrades, he's got no life, he's stuck on this farm, the farmer doesn't need him, he's completely useless, and he hates it. And so he persuades his wife to write to, them about their, write to him about their sex lives. And these become, She's very shy, so he writes the first one, but she likes it. So every week they write to each other about three times a week, where they write about their daughter, they write about the mother-in-law, they write about what the friends are doing, and they write about sex. And most Germans are too shy and too self-censoring to do that. But what you get is the flip side. You get the mirror image. So whenever there's a delay in the post, people fear that they've been betrayed sexually. They fear that the other partner has gone off and found somebody else. And it's this looming threat to to the relationship, which is, I think, the main reason that people write. And write so often is, and the people who write most often are husbands and wives or lovers. And... It's not an unreal threat. By 1943-44 the number of marriage breakups is going through the roof and the number of extramarital affairs is attracting a lot of attention actually from both the Catholic Church and the secret police who are both worried that this is kind of decline in morals. They actually both take the similar view of it all. And they don't just realise that this is what happens in war when you remove twenty million men. Um, and... But it does also change courtship patterns. So one of the pairs of characters who start the book start are courting before the war breaks out and they get married in December 1939, just before Christmas. They have two children. They come back together at various points during the war. They both survive, so do the children. And in the end, they're able to fulfill her dream, which is to open a flower shop. So they're, they're, their dreams and aspirations are very modest. And in the post-war period, that is what they manage to do. But I have another equally modest courting couple where he's a station master's son from a village in Austria and she sells tickets at the local ticket office. And they start courting in um, New Year's Eve 1944. He grabs her and kisses her. And he goes back to his base as a paratrooper in Germany, not knowing whether she really wanted him to kiss her or not. Mm -hmm. He starts courting her through these amazing letters which accompany him through the Normandy campaign. And he ends up in the French port of Brest, big submarine base for the Germans, where um, he's in fact bombed to pieces by um, the American Air Force and Army. And his last letter goes with a U-boat. And as an old lady, she brings this cache of letters to group of researchers at the University of Vienna and, and presents them. And she's then interviewed by one of the young historians. And after she's talked about this, this love affair, she says, and yes, by the way, I also corresponded with eight other young men at the same time. And of course, in 1944, you might have done that, but you wouldn't have in 1939 or 1940, because in 1939 or 40, you would have hoped that the war would be over soon and that everybody will survive. By 1944, it's like drawing lots. You're buying lottery tickets of some kind. And so, you know, even very, very intimate behavior changes. And that was one of the things that really interested me.
1: It, so As I read the book, uh, and, you, and you're following um, the, the, the ideas and the letters and the fates of the people uh, that you're using, that, that you as the author are reading the letters of, and, and and of course, periodically someone drops out, and and the tone, you, at least as I read your tone in writing it, is it's somewhat matter of fact, somewhat laconic. But I wonder what the experience is like of of reading these letters, which presumably, especially if if they're handwritten, which I'm sure they are, are going to take days or weeks to read a whole set of these letters. How did how did you feel when you? Read the last letters. How did you did you feel like how did how did it feel to get to know these people on such a personal level?
0: Oh, it is actually very upsetting, and it was partly a choice of authorial tone not to turn each of the deaths into and give it tragic coloring because I wanted to keep the authorial voice dry because their own voices are not dry, and they tend also to to mourn and to grieve in very um, in ways which are full of symbolism from the time, and so one of the interesting problems from a writer 's point of view is how do you remain true to their experience so there 's a there 's a couple who where he is goes missing he 's probably captured but then dies at Stalingrad, and his wife gets the letters she's writing to him returned as undelivered. And after a couple of months, by the spring of 1943, she gives up writing letters to him and she picks up a diary. She's never kept a diary. He's a carpenter. He's quite Nazi. He's quite crusty and authoritarian in his views of how they should bring up the children. And he struggles, this is again going back to the thing of family absence, he struggles to impose his authority on his teenage son who's you know, playing up by his lights. But the wife then starts writing a diary, and they substitute letters to him, and they're really a diary of grieving because she has no moment of parting. She doesn't know whether he's going to really manage to come back or not. She doesn't know whether he's really died or not. And so there isn't a moment of closure for her, and she keeps writing this diary letter to him through into the summer of 1945, and as more and more men come back from captivity to her village in Thuringia, it becomes unbearable for her. And so there are a few places where I did want to bring the reader in and give them a a direct sense of what it was that the bereaved go through. The other was a very nazi Photojournalist, fascinating woman who writes extraordinary letters to her um, fiancé and then husband, who's an artillery officer on the Eastern Front, bombarding Leningrad for years and then retreating to the Baltic, uh, wounded on the Baltic coast, transported in a hospital ship in February 1945 to Copenhagen, where he dies of um, probably blood poisoning, complications from a very ordinary flesh wound, At that point, you realize, of course, that the Germans don't have antibiotics. They don't have penicillin. And she gets the telegram announcing his death while she's in the middle of writing a love letter to him. And I wanted the reader to be able to sense what it was that she would have gone through at that moment, but without without speculating and without intruding, because in the end we do have her own words for it. And she stops writing. She breaks off the letter in the middle, which is where we know exactly when the telegram arrived. Um, So I certainly wouldn't belittle their sense of loss in any way, but I also wouldn't want to use it to excuse the simple fact that the deaths that Germans inflicted on the rest of the world in the Second World War far outweighed the numbers that they suffered
1: themselves. Well, there's lots more we could say about the book, um, and it's, it's a wonderful book, um, but, but we're about out of time, so I'd, I'd like to just ask you a couple quick kind of the, the standard ways I, I tend to in it, end interviews, and, and one is to ask you to recommend a book or a movie or, or both or something that the listeners, uh, that, that was important to you, whether in, in framing the discussion or whether you found it emotionally moving, what, what should I read next weekend?
0: Okay, I've got two suggestions for you. One is a film and the other is a book. The film is The Pianist, which is about the story of um, a Polish-Jewish pianist who was in the Warsaw ghetto of Ludwus Spielmann, who um, escaped from the ghetto after the mass deportation to Treblinka and survived through the help of non-Jewish Polish friends on the so-called Aryan side of Warsaw. And what's extraordinary about the film is it manages more than almost any other film about the Nazi period to get things historically right. And one of the things it gets right, which is incredibly valuable, is that survive in hiding, he has to keep being helped by a whole chain of people, which breaks down periodically and then gets reconstituted. And the people who help him have very different motivations. And some of them are drunkards. One of them embezzles the money. Some of them could have equally betrayed him, except it happens to be their interest to help him. And so you have all of these sense of moral ambiguity and personal ambivalence, which I think is historically correct. And that makes it an extraordinary film. The other thing about the film is there's only one really nice, decent, and also good-looking German in the film. It turns out the German officer... Who helps him and hides him under his own account in the final months of the occupation of Warsaw after the Warsaw Uprising of 44 has been crushed. And he's a real figure, Wilm Hosenfeld, and his letters and his diary were one of the sources that I used in my book. And I didn't know about him until I saw that film. So that's the film. Do you also want a book? Yeah, please. Um, That would be the Diaries of Victor Klemperer. Victor Mm. Klemperer was a German-Jewish literature specialist, a professor at a technical university in Dresden, who was married to a non-Jewish concert pianist, Eva. um, And this marriage to a so-called Aryan was what protected him from deportation. And they survived... In very straightened circumstances, despite all of the measures of Nazi persecution, they survive in Dresden until the mass bombing of the city in February 1945, and at that point he realizes that he has to cut off the Jewish star, or somebody is quite likely to shoot him in a fit of rage on the street. And from that point onwards, they get a well Away with this because all of the police files have been destroyed in the air raids and after February, this 14th of February, 15th of February air raids, they're evacuated and they pass for being an ordinary late middle aged bombed out German couple and so whereas for the previous years he's been conscious of being a Jew in Nazi Germany for the first time he passes as being an ordinary German and it's the conversations that he overhears And the journeys he undertakes in the last months of the war, um, until he's liberated at the beginning of May by the Americans, he ironically ends up retreating exactly in the lines that the Third Reich is retreating. So each place he leaves turns out to be liberated before the place he's going to. So it's deeply ironic, but it's also incredibly powerfully observed and like many Jewish First World War veterans who fought for Germany in the First World War, Klemper is not immune to German nationalism. And when he finally gets to Munich under American occupation and sees the American jeeps driving through the bombed-out streets, there's a part of him which is appalled rather than liberated. And that also that became the closing chapter of the book was this self-awareness from this incredibly perceptive and observant man that his own little bit of German nationalism had still not been completely eradicated by everything he'd suffered.
1: Hmm. Well, I will be happy to postpone grading by watching and reading those things. Um, and I will be happy to blame my students Blame you for, to my students for my inability to get papers back to them. But, <laughs> yes, um, send them all to Oxford. <laughs> but, but we need to go. Uh, thank you so much for your generosity with time. And um, it's a wonderful book. I should ask you before you close, though, um, and maybe it's an unfair question since uh, the book was published uh, by my count nine days ago, at least looking at Amazon. Um, so you've had nine days to think about your next project. What do you think it might be?
0: Um, anything except Nazi Germany in the Second World War. I think I probably need an, a prolonged bicycle ride. So one of, my many, <laughs> one of my many failed occupations is a bike mechanic, and I'll, I'll spend some time tinkering with bicycles. For
1: well, I'm sure you will find something. Well, first of all, I hope that you do indeed take that break. And then somewhere down the line, um, I'm sure you'll find another project. And perhaps uh, at that point, you'll be willing to come back on the show. But thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you.